Remember the beginning of this whole coronavirus nightmare? We were first kind of into our shelter in place (laughs) experience. And I know that was different timing for all of us, but there was this desperate need, I remember, to laugh. We just all craved humor and moments of humanity. And my guest today gave us exactly that. You are about to meet Dion Broxton, a reporter with NBC affiliate KTVM at the time, who became an overnight celebrity when a clip of his went viral for an unintentional moment he captured on film, the moment when he and a herd of bison got cozy. The audio you're about to hear is from a video that has been watched over 11 million times. Today.com called him the hero of the internet. Yellowstone is calling him the face of safety for their park, which is where the video was shot. It's really quite funny. But this clip fascinated me, and I wondered what the backstory was. Not just the Bison Dion backstory, but Dion Broxton's backstory. I mean, it is not every day you see a black reporter based in a market like Montana. I knew there was an interesting story there, and I wasn't wrong. I am pleased and delighted to introduce you to the wonderful Dion Broxton. I just wanted to provide some commentary on the bison video. I normally see bison all the time in Yellowstone, but I've never had one actually come in my direction. So when I saw the bison wasn't stopping, I was thinking to myself, should I just keep going or should I take the chance of it actually like ramming me? So I just made the quick decision not to stay there and see what would happen. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh no, I ain't messing with you. Oh no. (laughs) The reason I wanted to have you on my podcast is I just loved how human that moment was, right? Did you know when you put that video out into the world what was going to happen when people saw it? No. All of us news reporters, we, we post bloopers all the time on our social media. Uh-huh. And I post my bloopers pretty often. Yeah. And I've had ones that I thought that were funnier than that one. But with that one, I, I legitimately was, like, afraid. I wasn't even thinking about posting it as a blooper. I was just worried about, you know, getting out of there. And I forgot to stop recording because in small markets, you don't get a photog. You shoot you everything by yourself. So I was so spooked that I forgot to stop the record button. I didn't hit it. So um, when I got back to the news station and I saw it, I I mean, I thought it was like kind of funny, but I I still don't think it's that funny. I think it's kind of funny. Did you grow up in Montana? Like, how did you get into that market? How did you get into this? So you're a film minor. Like, give me your backstory a little bit. I grew up in the hood of Baltimore. I went to college in Pennsylvania for two years. My first two years of college, I went to college in Pennsylvania to run track. But I wasn't going to the Olympics, and that wasn't fun anymore because when you play sports in high school, mm-hmm. it's fun. But when you get to like college, and I would assume the professional level becomes business, yeah. I just wasn't having any fun anymore. So I thought to myself, well, it's time to focus on my career. Mm-hmm. And from like middle school and high school, I pretty much knew that I was going to be a sports journalist. 
So I already knew what I wanted to do. And I was, I was already majoring in journalism when I was in college. So I transferred back home. It was cheaper and I was closer to home. Mm-hmm. I knew I had more opportunity because in Baltimore, we have four news stations versus where I was in York, Pennsylvania. That was only, I believe, like maybe one news station in the city and then maybe two others mm-hmm. nearby. I just knew I had more opportunity in Baltimore. Yeah. Covered. I was always committed to sports, but my senior year, I took news reporting and I covered the Freddie Gray protest. Oh. And I saw Lester Holt. I saw CNN. I saw all of these national, local news. And I was just like enamored and like my mouth dropped. From that point on, I knew I wanted to be a news reporter. And I started taking school more seriously. My last semester of college, I, was, I took it so seriously that I made Dean's List and I finished with like a 3.6 GPA because I was just so committed at that point. I got an internship at one of the local news stations. Wow. But the problem for me was being from Baltimore, like I grew up in the hood, I had a very thick accent. The way that my middle school teacher would describe it, she would call African-American, she was a black woman, mm-hmm. but she would say that African-Americans are lazy lipped. So we don't really, I mean, but, but, she, but she, she was black and there's some <laughs> truth behind that. It's truth behind that because certain words I just didn't put emphasis on and I had a thick accent. So when I graduated college, I thought that I was going to be a news reporter right away. Mm-hmm. And that, that wasn't the case. I don't know how many places I applied. Because I had stuff on tape. Yeah. I don't know how many places I applied to, but I didn't get not one. And it has to be anywhere between 60 to 100 places I applied to. Nothing. Oh, my God. How did you keep motivated when you were experiencing that kind of challenge? I was always told to get your foot in the door. Mm. So I got a job at one of the local news stations as an assignment editor. I worked there part-time and I worked at FedEx part-time. Wow. So for four months in a row, I worked, I worked every day for four months in a row. But then after those four months, I got a job as a web producer full-time at another Baltimore station. During these two years, I'm shadowing reporters and learning how to do the trade. In summer of 2017, I was visiting one of my friends who's a reporter in Chicago. I was visiting him and I got a phone call from a news director in in Gainesville, Florida. And he was telling me that he watched my stuff and he liked me and he liked my resume. You know, fast forward like a month or so, you know, I've been talking to him and I didn't get the job because he said my accent was too strong and I was pissed off. So after that, I was so pissed off that I hired a speech pathologist and I worked with a speech pathologist for four months. And, you know, during this time, I'm still going out shadowing reporters, working with photographers at my station. And when I finished my speech training, I put up a reel and I had three job interviews in one week. Oh, one of those. Yeah. One of those interviews was from my news director in Montana. And at that time, Montana has never, ever, ever, ever <laughs> I'm on my radar. I thought I would go anywhere, you know, maybe the middle of somewhere in the south, small town in New York. So Montana came along and I was just like, I'm not going to Montana. I'm not going to Montana. I talked to the news director, 
talked to the assistant news director and I really liked him. I remember my, when I had my Skype interview with my news director, he took his webcam and pointed it towards the mountains outside his window. And I was thinking to myself, that means nothing to me. I grew up on concrete and rats. Me seeing mountains has no type of influence on me at all. But I just, you know, we continued the conversation. I was at the beach. I, I, I did my drug test. My, my drug test came back clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, background check came back clean. Mm-hmm. And my news director called me when I was at the beach with my friends. I'll never forget it. And he said, you know, everything came back good. You know, I can send you the contract, blah, blah, blah. And my friends told me I wasn't really present. Because, you know, it was Memorial Day weekend. You know, yeah. we're going to the bars, beach. Yeah. You know, it was a good time. And my yeah. friends told me, like, I wasn't really present because the whole time I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm about to drive 2,000 miles across the country to Montana. My but I guess God. it was worth it because of that video. <laughs> well, it's so it's wild, actually, when you think about all those little decisions we make that change the course of our lives. And you've since left the Montana market, or the Bozeman market, right? Now you're in Iowa City, correct? I'm in Cedar Rapids. I cover Iowa City a lot, which is like 30-minute drive to the south. And did the visibility that the bison video or the clip got you, did that have anything to do with the move that you made? Everyone has been asking me that. <laughs> I personally don't think so because I got two job offers in mm-hmm. Iowa, one from the station I'm at now and one from the competition. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to these stations before the bison video happened. Mm-hmm. So oh, after the bison video happened, they're like, oh, crap, this is a guy that we're considering <laughs> for a job. And honestly, and, yeah. and I think my news director would back me on this, I was pretty confident I was going to get the job. Mm-hmm. But I think the Bison video was just icing on the cake because they knew I could bring visibility to the station. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got a lot of followers and a lot of eyeballs. And I, I wanted to ask you, because I, I think if I'm not mistaken, you've been, I mean, my God, you've been covering life in coronavirus season, but also you've been covering protests. You've been sort of the heart of some pretty big stories. Now, while you're covering them at the local level, like we'll be reading about this time in history books in 25 years, you know, what has it been like for you? Again, going back to that thing about broadcast journalism and reporting, you know, that need to keep everything, you're not the story, you're out of it, you're, you know, how has it been covering protests of, you know, police brutality under these circumstances for you? I don't want to see a police officer put his knee on someone's neck and kill him. Yeah. But it's exactly what I signed up for. You know, growing up in Baltimore, this, you know, Freddie Gray, the police department has a long history of corruption in Baltimore. These are the kind of stories that I want to cover. And, you know, in this industry, we're not all fortunate to start in these big, glamorous markets. So I had to get my start in Montana covering bison. Hey. But this is this is exciting. (laughs) Yeah, but this is like my first week. My first week, three days in, I covered a tear gas incident where like I was behind the police, thankfully. But some of the other news stations, they were in the crowd with the protesters. Luckily for me, my photographer has been in this market for 10 years. 
So he was saying, like, if something pops off or something happens, mm -hmm. let's be on this side so we don't get nothing happens to us. Yeah. So luckily for him, he made the right decision because unfortunate as it was, we got some great footage of the tear gas and we didn't get caught in it like some of the other journalists here in town. But this is exactly what I wanted to do. And I was thrown into the fire, but I mean, I was ready for it. I was prepared. Yeah. I, I was prepared for it. Now I, so the Freddie Gray incident that sparked your interest, if this is so horrible, but this is also, I think, true. There have been so many names that we've become, you know, exposed to Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray. I have a list of them on my bulletin board and the list just keeps growing. But I recently reconnected with Freddie Gray's story. And if I'm not mistaken, he got he got the attention of the police for making eye contact with him, with them, yes. got chased and was put in into police custody because he had a pocket knife that was just slightly bigger than, I don't know, an average pocket knife. And he yep. wound up dead shortly thereafter. Is that the moment that became the spark that became the flame that was Ferguson? Ferguson happened in 2012, if I'm not mistaken. That got a lot, of, a lot of attention, too. But to me, I felt like Baltimore was... Because, you know, Ferguson is kind of a small town. It's not yeah. as big as Baltimore. Bar Baltimore was like... Huge. You know, in, uh, Baltimore was a big enough city that I think that really got the attention because the riots here were, like, something you haven't seen in a long time. Like, I remember talking to my family. They were saying they haven't seen riots in Baltimore like that since the 1968 riots when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Oh my God. So I think that Freddie Gray was, it sparked what we see today with uh, Minneapolis and other cities around the country. And yet it's the same just, shit. Like, what's that like as a reporter? You know, so you're being objective and you're there on the ground, but you're also a black man. Like, how do you compartmentalize all of those emotions and reactions, natural reactions that anyone, especially you would have in that? Do you have to get into a certain mindset? Yes, I'm this delusional person where I think that, and this might sound insensitive, mm. I'm a delusional person where I give people more credit that I, I expect people to be like logical human beings. Yeah. So when I see these things with police officers, I think to myself, you didn't see the Mike Brown incident. You didn't see the Freddie Gray incident. I'm just like, you've seen this and yet you, this doesn't cross your mind. Like even the police officer in Atlanta, you see all this stuff going on. And I think it was North Charleston yeah. where the black guy ran away from the cop and the cop shot him and killed him. And you cannot tell me that police officer in Atlanta didn't see that. You know, maybe it was an instant kind of thing where he has a taser. I need to stop him by any means necessary. Maybe that did cross his mind. But, like, I give more people credit than that. I think, you're, I think people are a lot smarter than that. But as a, a black man covering these things, one, from a news angle or the news side of things, I have an advantage to the other stations because one of the stations in town, they have a black reporter, but he's the morning reporter. Mm. I'm the night side reporter. So these protests always happen at night. Yeah. So when I'm out in the field and I see the competition there, is this white people. So I know I have the upper hand and in getting interviews and stuff. My first week here, the same day as a tear gas night, 
there was a, a black, and you know, you've probably been seeing this, the media have been getting attacked by protesters. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes. I mean, some of them are getting arrested in mid-broadcast. The guy who got arrested, I'm actually friends with him because I interned at the station when he was a reporter there, Omar Jimenez. Amazing. But this 20-year-old kid, <laughs> him and his friends, they stood in front of my cameraman. I'm not just going to be frank. A lot of the people in media, it's a lot of white people, yeah. and they're kind of intimidated by these protesters. And I grew up in the hood of Baltimore, you know, so like, I'm not going to let you just stop me from doing my job. I'm not going to say nothing. So I got in their face. I'm like, look, you're marching through these streets to get the attention of people. Why would you stop us from spreading your message to people at home on TV? And they, they, they couldn't respond because I was making too much sense. Because in the beginning, they were like, <laughs> right. in the beginning, they were talking to me. But when I started making sense, they were mostly like, you know, 22 and younger, probably all yeah. of them. And they wouldn't look me in my eye. And I'm a grown man. And, I, and I'm going to make you look me in my eye and talk to me and show me some dignity and give me some respect. I, I'm, a, I'm a very prideful human being. Yeah. And when I started yeah. making sense, none of them can look me in my eye. And they just kind of cowered and feared and walked away. And two days later, at, you know, they've been having these like community meetings all over. Mm-hmm. So two days later, there was a community meeting. And I saw that same kid. And I went up and I talked to him and I said, hey, look, man, like I wasn't trying to be disrespectful or anything. I just want you to know that it's a black guy. It's the same black guy. I I just want you to know that we're here as a platform to help you out. We want both sides of the story. Police, they're always going to talk to us because nine times out of the ten, police get to tell their story. I've covered crime enough where a lot of the times we get the police report and that's what we report from. We can't, the person who gets arrested, we usually don't get to tell their side of the story. We just report what's in the police report and nine times out of 10, what's in the police report favors the police department. So I explained that to him and he's, he's one of the leaders of the protest and I convinced him to do an interview with me. And I was the only reporter to get an interview with this kid and this same kid got arrested two days later because he was on probation for second degree robbery when he was a teenager. Oh my so it's like, God. yeah, so like the story, as sad as it is, but the story kept developing. I'm like, wow, I interviewed the guy yeah. who yeah. got arrested two days later and I, t- I interviewed police and police arrested him for trespassing on the campus, the University of Iowa and damaging property. I think they said he was like breaking windows and spray painting. But those are misdemeanors, but they kept him in jail because he violated his probation. Because oh he, he got convicted for a second degree robbery a few years ago when he was a teenager. And then, you know, of course the protest kept going on and his mother showed up to the protest and I interviewed her. I don't think that I'm pretty certain the other TV stations didn't interview her. And when I'm there at the scene, I can see how intimidated that these news reporters and photographers are. Mm. Me, you're not going to intimidate me. Like, you're not going to intimidate me. Like, two weeks ago, the protesters, they marched to the mayor's house, who's a black guy. They Mm -hmm. marched to his house and they were kind of berating. I'm going to call it how it is. They were berating him. They were saying, oh, you live in this nice house in this white neighborhood. These kids were berating him and, like, 
I believe in protesting, but I don't believe in dehumanizing, berating someone and making a fool of them. Right. And they were berating him. And, you know, when we get there, I pull out my phone. I do Facebook Live from my station's TV account. Mm-hmm. And then this guy, this white guy, he asked, are you recording? And I said, yes. And he said, can you stop? I said, no, I'm going to do what I want. And he walked away. And I was so confused because this same guy gave me and my photographer bottles of water earlier in the day when the protest started. And I was just confused. And then a black girl, she came up and she put her hand in front of my camera and she was like, are you with us or against us? And I felt like, why would you ask me something like that? Because I'm a black man. And she said, are you with us or against us? I'm like, come on, I'm just trying to record. And she kept saying, are you with us or against us? And I said, all right, all right, all right. And I backed up and I kept recording and she gave me the finger. And I felt, you know, my pride as a black man was hurt. Yeah. Because he was saying, are you with us or against us? And, you know, I'm a black man first, journalist second. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, I'm out here showing what you guys are doing to get a message spread. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say, you know, in, the, in the journalism, we have to remain unbiased. Yeah. But to me, any publicity is good publicity. So mm-hmm. if I'm giving you guys publicity, it's only going to help you. Mm-hmm. And well, and then if you're covering my camera, you're insinuating you don't want this to be filmed. Exactly. And they're, telling, and they're telling me we don't want to be arrested. We don't want to be seen on your cameras being arrested because we did these things. If you're in the game to be an antagonizer, an agitator, this is only going to help your cause. Because mm-hmm. when, when I go on Facebook Live, mm-hmm. there are people who criticize the protesters. But these are the same people you're trying to reach. You already have people on your side. Yeah. The way you get unity is bringing people from the other side. So these people who are complaining, you kind of get the platform to spread your message. Those are the ones you need. It's just like Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. Democrats are going to get their votes. Republicans are going to get their votes. You want the people on the fence, and you want to pull people from the other side. The city council in these cities in Iowa are passing legislation. In Cedar Rapids, where I am, I've been seeing the the police officers in Cedar Rapids and Waterloo, which all in my viewing area, mm-hmm. they've been marching with the people and talking to them and having good conversations. You know, these same people protested, you know, they say, okay, let me hear you out. Versus in Iowa City, the police department hasn't done that yet. They haven't come and marched with the protesters. They haven't had these conversations. Mm-hmm. And honestly, it's just agitating both sides. Somebody has to, like, come to the plate and, like, I'm the leader of the protest. Let me talk to your, the police chief. That hasn't happened yet. So, like, I think, like, both sides need to make that happen. But it's just both sides are just being, to me, it appears being stubborn. Yeah, yeah. You know, it makes me think about how, in some ways, it seems like journalism is a little bit ill-equipped to cover what's going on because there are so few people of color, uh, people of culture, which is a new phrase I've just been learning, covering these stories. And like you said, you know, there's a certain amount of access and a certain amount of intelligence, compassion, and empathy that people of color can bring to a story that white people just can't. Mm -hmm. And that is just the way it is. And I wonder if you're seeing 
any shift in the composition of who's getting the jobs to go out and cover this stuff. Like, is there more opportunity for people of color now than there has been in the past? Because journalism is broken in that sense. Like they've got to fix that if they want to accurately report, gain access, get the scoop, get their first. I mean, what are you seeing on just at like a broader level? Newsrooms are predominantly white and I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but I feel like some news stations, not mine, not the one I'm at, Mm -hmm. but I feel like some news stations just hire people of color just to fill a quota. Like obviously in a place like Baltimore and a place like Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Mm -hmm. there's a good deal of black people. So I do believe news directors understand you need to have people who look like your viewers. I get that. But in places where there's like all white people, I don't think there's a need to hire people of color. I mean, I think they do it to look better. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, of course there's a need because you want people at home to know that there's more people out there than people who just look like you. That's right. But, but the but market is pushing them into it is what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like, if that wasn't the case, like in places like Montana, mm-hmm. Yeah. If there wasn't a need to hire people of color, I don't think I would have got hired there. Yeah. I think I got hired there because, you know, it's, it's all over the country. You have to have diversity because yeah. all the minority people, they work in the bureaus, which I was kind of like in the bureau. Mm-hmm. And all the pretty white girls work at the main station where they have all the resources. I and wanted to like. The funny thing is, is I wonder, you know, when you have like a panel of white women with blonde hair and blue eyes and the same skin tone, can the audience even distinguish who's who? Like, it's almost just like drop a generic white woman in here and hope that it just pleases some weird aesthetic. It's creepy. Yeah. I think I told you my coworker who I was talking to last night, Mm -hmm. she's blonde, blue eyed white girl. Mm-hmm. I told her, I'm just like, you guys, and she agreed with me. I'm like, you guys all look and sound the same. It's like, I think I know that's why I was so successful in Montana. Yeah. Because dark skin, distinct voice, you don't hear or see people like me in Montana. That's why I was so successful. That's it. And you would think you would diverse. I mean, like, and a lot of, and, and part of journalism too is having someone that people trust you got to diversify your staff because it makes you more of an individual. Like me, if I was a white girl in Montana, I wouldn't be that happy because it's like, no one's not going to know the name of the white girl when you got 10 of them working there. But me, I'm the only black guy. So like everybody knew who I was. I was really popular in Montana, but it wasn't hard for me to do that. I do believe I was good at my job and I'm charismatic, but besides that, the way I looked also helped. Yeah. You know, when you think about, little boys that are, you know, growing up now, they're like little versions of you growing up in Baltimore. What advice do you have for the next generation of black broadcast journalists and black reporters coming up in these major markets? Like if you could go back and talk to yourself, what would you tell him? Be prepared to make a little bit of money. (laughs) 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 It's going to be like, my two years in Montana was the two hardest years of my life. And people would always tell me, reporters, like, it's going to be hard the first few years. They would always tell me that. 
I just think to myself, I grew up in Baltimore. Like how hard, how hard it be. <laughs> but like living in Montana for two years was probably hard. It was definitely, I know it was definitely harder than growing up in the hood of Baltimore. One, because in the hood, you know where everything is. You know how to condone yourself. You know how to blend in. Mm-hmm. But when I went to Montana, there was no blending in. No matter where I go, people were going to look yeah. at me and stare at me. People would stare yeah. at you? It wasn't like racism. It was just curiosity, yeah. which I understand. Yeah. Like one time I was at, they have hot springs in Montana, mm-hmm. which you probably heard of before. It's like a pool, like heated pool. I went to the hot springs one time when I was in the locker room changing. And there was this little white boy, probably two or three years old with his father. He said, hey, daddy, his skin is brown. And his dad just looked so embarrassed and just grabbed him by the mouth and, like, pulled him towards him. His father didn't even make eye contact with him because he was so embarrassed. And I kind of, like, chuckled. But it's just like, if you live in a community where all you see is white people, you have to expect that from me. I don't fault the kid. And I don't necessarily fault the father because, you know, I'm sure they're living in Montana because he really likes it. Yeah. But that's just something you have to be prepared for if your kids not understanding diversity if they grow up in a community like that. That's, right. that's why I, I always tell people if I was a white person who enjoyed the outdoors, I could live in Montana. Montana is a beautiful state. Some of the nicest people. But as a black man, I cannot live in Montana. I cannot do it. I, I would probably get a summer home there. Yeah. It's really nice in the summertime. Yeah. And I really enjoy hiking. And I really enjoy being out in the fresh air mm-hmm. and there's black people who do it, but I just, from my culture, my culture yeah. isn't that. And yeah. I have to be something that resembles my culture yeah. for me to be 100% comfortable. Cause but that must be I'll, a certain kind of loneliness. Like that yes. very isolated feeling of being utterly alone. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes. I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm a charismatic person. I have friends and, Mm -hmm. I've always had people to hang out with, but they were all white. And even like the black people who live there, kind of they like choose to live there. So I just feel like there's kind of a disconnect because I'm only here for the job. I'm not here because I want to live here, you know? So like I didn't have anyone who I could relate to 100% versus like in Baltimore, I had so many people I could relate to. I have like lifelong friends. Yeah from Montana, but yeah. like, I know they would, I would never can relate to them the way I can relate to one of my black friends in Baltimore. Isn't he just a good human? I loved that conversation. And I think what will stick with me as I remember and think about what Dion's story was, is that diversity in broadcast journalism isn't just a nice idea or it's not just the right thing to do. Diversity in journalism means higher quality reporting. It means better coverage of the issues, better access to the people who actually make up this country. I hope he's the beginning of many more people that come from all over the place, from all kinds of different backgrounds. I am delighted that young reporters like him are making their way up through the various markets into the top. And... I hope that we see great things from him. I can't wait to see what this new generation of journalists will bring to the table. That's all for this week. Shine on you crazy diamonds. I'll see you next time.